Dear listeners, welcome to the Data Frontiers podcast. I'm your host, Valentine Gandhi. In this podcast series, we will explore how new data technologies are being used to address some of the most pressing issues of our time, such as COVID-19, climate change, infrastructure issues, diplomacy, and education. In 2020, the UK government commissioned a study that was undertaken by NIRA's Digital Futures Hub for the Frontier Technologies Program. This was done to review the digital data landscape and identify data technologies that had the highest potential for impact and use by the FCDO as well as the wider international development community. This study was led by Matthew Shearing and I was the technical lead for the study. The full study link is available in the description below. In these exciting podcast series, we will be taking a look at some of the recommendations raised in this report and we'll speak to thought leaders and practitioners at the front lines of implementing data technologies. And we sincerely hope our guests will inspire you to make better practical use of frontier technologies in your own work. So we look forward to having you listen into our episode. And we are very excited to introduce uh, Stefan Wellholst. Uh, he is joining us uh, from the US. And uh, Stefan is the co-founder and chief research and development officer of the Government Governance Laboratory or the GovLab at the NYU, New York University. It's an action research center focused on improving governance using advances in science and technology, including data and collective intelligence. At the GovLab, Stefan uh, has developed and leads a range of impactful research initiatives that contribute to enhance understanding and improve practice of using data science and technology for decision and policymaking. Very happy to have you in our studio today, Stefan, and look forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me, Valentine. Thank you. So, Stefan, uh, just to start, uh, perhaps you, what will be most interesting to speak with, we've been speaking with a range of uh, data science professionals, FCDO colleagues, and also people who are at the cusp of data science and uh, development. And I, I would imagine from your background, you are one of those uh, probably in the forefront of uh, bridging the gap between data science and uh, development. So uh, could you tell us the potential value and challenges of uh, using existing data like big data does and or Twitter or social media? Uh, and mobile location data that can be used in international development from some of your case studies, preferably uh, perhaps on your recent work on the COVID mobility portal repository or on climate change in education. Uh, and and uh, mind you, some of our listeners are not data science professionals, uh, so uh, perhaps you can give some case studies on how you made the transition from using data science tools for the international development. Great. Well, um, thanks so much, uh, Valentine, for having me and for uh, that question. It's a, it's a big question, so I will try to uh, uh, deconstruct it uh, uh, somewhat. Uh, and as you rightly said, we um, uh, here at GovLab, uh, we have conducted a whole range of initiatives trying to unlock the um, data, trying to unlock new data sources that can be used to inform public interest decision-making. And, uh, and that typically includes uh, data that quite often is collected by the private sector, such as mobility data, which typically, of course, comprises a whole range of uh, uh, data. Um, most people, when they talk about mobility data, 
They think about data that emerges from telecom operators, such as call detail records or so-called XDRs, uh, which is a, a, an additional layer of data that is collected when you're making a phone call. But there are many other data, uh, mobility data that is being uh, generated, for instance, uh, through your smartphone, uh, because every smartphone has a sensor, and typically that pings, uh, whether it's to the uh, first party, i.e. the one that uh, collects the data uh, or has, the, uh, has access to the data on your smartphone, or to third parties that typically generate also a data uh, trace. And then there are other mobility data, such as, for instance, GPS uh, data, if you are in your car and you're using a GPS, in case that's still the case, or your car has a, an, uh, an inbuilt GPS that also produces, of course, a trace. So there's a whole uh, bunch of uh, data sets that are being uh, generated almost on a minute by minute uh, basis. And the question that we are trying to uh, address and the practice that we try to establish is how do we provide access to that data in order to provide um, responsible uh, but also impactful insight. So that's the uh, one of the, uh, the questions. And we recently conducted a study uh, um, and uh, uh, we built a repository where we provide insight with regard to the use of that data for COVID-19. And uh, uh, I guess uh, a link will be shared um, um, when uh, we release this podcast where you can find out uh, more information. But before I go into um, uh, some of the, uh, the use cases, let me first reflect on your first part, uh, Valentin, on what's the value of uh, accessing data. And to a large extent, it's really about uh, decision-making. Uh, as you know, on a daily basis, uh, policymakers and individuals and others uh, have to make uh, decisions. And typically, decisions involves choosing between options. And typically, we have a set of uncertainties with regard to what option will have what consequence and what option might be the preferred one. And in order to deal with those uncertainties, you do need to, of course, have access to insight that can really provide for a better understanding of what option should I uh, pursue. And that's at the macro level, like for instance, when making decisions with regard to development uh, uh, funding. And, uh, and to just give you a, um, a number uh, to indicate the potential uh, impact of having better insight to make decisions as it relates to development funds, for instance, on a yearly basis, uh, 20 to 30 trillion uh, US dollars is being spent on development aid. <laughs> if we could only improve that spending by 1%, right, we would already have a massive, uh, a massive uh, uh, cost uh, reduction and a massive uh, benefit, uh, financial benefit uh, in how we go about development. And so that's just to put the potential value of data into context and give uh, uh, perhaps some uh, indication of the potential as it relates to like macro decisions on how and where should we invest uh, in order to achieve, for instance, the SDGs, whether these are related to healthcare, agriculture, education, social protection and security, 
and so on and so on, including climate change, of course. At the micro level, at the level of individuals, there are all kinds of interesting studies, mainly at the uh, within neuroscience, actually, that have uh, indicated that an individual makes 35,000 decisions on a daily basis. <laughs> and uh, Cornell recently came out with a study that as it relates to food, uh, an individual makes 222 decisions on a daily basis. So imagine, right, the potential of having better uh, uh, insight, right, on what uh, uh, are the, what should I do, right, with regards to um, what school should I send my kids to? What, uh, uh, what education should I acquire so that I get a job in the future? What job should I pursue? Uh, where should I walk in order to uh, be most, uh, in the most safest way to go home? What should I eat in order to stay healthy? I mean, there are thousands and thousands of questions that could be improved, and as a result, people's lives could be improved if we have better insight. So that's just uh, to give you a sense on uh, the potential that data has with regard to making better decisions and as a result, improving uh, people's lives. Now, as it relates to COVID-19, uh, we indeed uh, have uh, looked and anyway, when COVID-19 hit also our shores, and as you know, uh, New York was um, unfortunately at a, for a, a period of time, the epicenter of uh, COVID-19. Um, we started immediately looking into how can we uh, leverage and access data in order to really improve decision-making. And uh, there are a whole range of questions that we uh, felt could be addressed by mobility data. And they range from, for instance, questions that, uh, that are linked with, for instance, what's the average distance that is being traveled by area in order to understand to what extent the lockdown, for instance, has an impact on mobility. Uh, questions with regard to the impact of social distancing on social mixing. Questions with regard to uh, our points of interest being visited more or less. What do we see with relocation, right? As you know, there has been, uh, uh, as in many major cities, and it's interesting to see uh, where you are based, Valentine, as well, we see a relocation <laughs> of, uh, uh, of individuals. And in order to understand the relocation, we actually do need to understand anyway, mobility patterns. And do we see this mass exodus uh, as uh, we have expected? And do we see returns, for instance? What about with uh, quarantine adherence and so on? So these are all questions where mobility data can provide answers. And that's also what we have seen. So we've collected about 71 uh, use cases uh, where um, mobility data has been shared towards those types of uh, questions. And they include, for instance, in Europe, uh, there has been uh, a really interesting uh, phenomenon where, or development where the European Commission uh, has established, for instance, access to telecom data that is then subsequently shared with a joint research uh, uh, center from the European Commission. The GRC normalizes the data and then provides on almost a daily basis insight and updates with regards to the spread of the uh, pandemic 
but also uh, shares uh, data with regard to, for instance, uh, mobility patterns uh, and so on. Other uh, use cases are, for instance, in, um, um, well, uh, for instance, with Facebook and Google that have shared uh, mobility data as well, so that you basically can, anyway, type in uh, your zip code or your where your location is, and you can see to what extent, anyway, is there an increase or a decrease in actually mobility patterns and what are some of the hotspots that one should uh, prevent uh, going to, and so on and so on. So a whole range of use cases that we have seen. I think COVID-19 has provided for the ultimate kind of um, uh, experiment to really think about the value of data. Uh, but obviously, there are a whole range of challenges attached to that as well. But I've probably done already enough talking for now, Valentine. No, no, that was brilliant. I mean, you answered my big question and without missing any, any of the parts and quite systematically and with clear examples. And I, I think that's very useful to our listeners. You mentioned uh, data sharing and access in your, when you're talking about uh, your responses. And I, I note that uh, a better part of your work, a large part of your work has been on open data initiatives, uh, such as data collaboratives and open data policy lab and the, the data stewards network. Uh, so what are these and what do they do and how are they different from each other or similar? And could you, could you share some light on what, what, yeah. the, what, what do you do? Yeah, great. Thanks uh, for that question, Valentine. So yeah, so one of the um, key challenges, of course, in order to access um, private sector data, but also public sector data, is of course, how do you find a model and a way to match demand and supply, right? And uh, in what for data and the demand, of course, that we are interested in is demand coming from the public interest sector, and that could be government, but could also be NGOs or other actors that are trying to generate insight that can improve people's lives. And the supply could be on the one hand, the public sector could also be the private sector. And then of course, research organizations as well. And um, what we have felt uh, at the need and what we have identified is really that we as a society have to become far more sophisticated in developing models to reuse data for public interest, by which we mean uh, that data that was collected for one purpose, how do we then provide access to that data in a responsible way that then can be used for other purposes? And we are, of course, mainly interested for public interest uh, purposes. I mean, obviously, uh, we hope that it's not going to be used for any other harmful uh, purposes, which uh, obviously is one big threat as well. And so towards that end, we have looked into new types of public-private partnerships where demand and supply, but also capacity to analyze and generate insight come together. And that's what we call data collaboratives, because we do believe that there has to be a new way of actually matching demand and supply that is systematic, sustainable, and responsible. And so that's what we have been uh, focusing on. Now, again, if you would go to our uh, flagship initiative there, which is datacollaboratives.org, there you would find uh, the largest repository of examples of data collaborations uh, uh, and collaboratives. And I think we have about 300 or so that we have documented. Obviously, 
Uh, it might be the largest, but anyway, there are many more that we uh, have not yet identified that I'm sure are existing as well. And uh, a few key uh, lessons and insights from that. One is that there is no one best model to actually establish a data collaborative. It depends on a set of variables, such as, for instance, how open does the data have to be? How long do we need access to the data? Who is part of the data? Is it one to one or is it one to many, many to many, many to one? <laughs> so there are a whole range of variables that uh, come into play. And I think a key uh, uh, aspect in order to accelerate data collaboration, given those variables, is that we need to have a new profession that can figure out, given the context, given the need, given the sensitivity of the data, for instance, what would be the best way to establish the data collaborative? And that's where we have advocated for a new profession, a new function, which we call the chief data steward or a data steward, which is a reimagined function of the data stewardship going beyond security and privacy, but also focusing on the responsibility to figure out how to provide access when there is a clear public interest case and how to do so in a manner that is systematic and sustainable and responsible uh, as well. So that's our work on data stewardship. Again, Valentine, you got more than you asked for. <laughs> no, I think it's quite rich information, but we are coming up uh, quickly on time. But since we started late, I think we, we, are, we are okay. Uh, the main thing I wanted to ask you just on uh, some of the things you're mentioning is ours, the, the Frontier Data Study found uh, uh, Earth Observation, AI, and mobile positioning data, and cloud-based uh, privacy secure servers as some of the emerging uh, data sources that can be of great benefit for an agency like FCDO. So in your experience, uh, given the post-COVID era, perhaps very briefly, what are you seeing as the emerging data sources? Uh, and uh, I'll go back to another question, but this, uh, can you briefly answer, what do you see are high potential data sources and uh, areas where right. we can, uh, let's say an FZDO manager, where can they access them? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I think, uh, it's important to focus on data sources, but it's equally important to focus on what type of questions, right, are we trying to answer? And I think in order to answer your question, Valentine, I would, uh, I mean, I'm afraid to be such a uh, um, perhaps nerd, I will have to say it depends on the question, right? Um, so I would say um, typically if you are uh, working on, um, COVID-19 or working on any kind of societal uh, challenge, typically you will want data that has some kind of location uh, 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 data, that has some kind, quite often a timestamp, right? That you know uh, where and when, and then of course has uh, an understanding of who, which could be anyway, uh, personally, but also demographically identifiable information. And of course the PII and DII creates additional kinds of concerns with regard to uh, privacy protection. So the question then is, of course, what data sets do have a location, a timestamp, and quite often a at least an understanding of um, um, demographic uh, demographic uh, data. And I think that, of course, um, uh, is vast. 
Uh, and uh, if you just think about the opportunity here, is that every sector uh, of society that has undergone a digital transformation has become a data sector, right? Because uh, uh, if you are you know, taking, um, uh, taking transportation, for instance, uh, you're basically generating a digital trail the moment you swipe for the bus or the moment you are taking a car sharing uh, service, or even here, like in New York, the moment you take a bike, a shared bike, uh, uh, as such, you basically leave a trail that has a location and a timestamp, right? And uh, and so transportation data is extremely valuable. Um, uh, banking data is extremely valuable because, of course, uh, it clearly understand gives you a sense on uh, financial transactions, which, by the way, are and behavioral transactions, which are a reflection of behavioral uh, patterns as well. Um, then you have telecom data or any kind of mobility data, of course, uh, but you also have retail data that could be extremely valuable if you want to understand, for instance, supply, but also wants to understand, for instance, consumption uh, patterns. And again, uh, if you want to understand pricing in your country, consumer pricing, you probably will have to start having access more and more to retail data as well. So it's vast, Valentine, uh, which is why I would prefer to start with a question as to really then understand what are the kinds of data sets, but we do need to be far more imaginative to really think about the data supply ecosystem, because as I said, anyone, any sector, any company, any organization, public and private, that has undergone digital transformation has become a data uh, uh, sector as well. And that's where the potential lies. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the last question because we're running out of time, but you coined the term AI localism. So how is it relating to AI governance? I think yourself and uh, your colleague, Mona Sloan. So can you tell our listeners briefly, what is AI localism? And in case we have not heard of it, I, mean, I've, I've, I follow your work, so I've read it. So uh, could you briefly tell us how is it related to AI governance, what it is, and what is AI localism? Yeah, thanks again. And so, yeah, so um, of course, one area that we are focusing on is artificial intelligence. And here, uh, what uh, uh, we feel is somewhat missing from the public agenda is how AI can be used at the local level, and more importantly, how AI governance can be innovated at the local level. What we see happening uh, in the public uh, conversation uh, is quite often AI strategies at the national level or the regional level, but the real value of AI is gonna uh, be extracted at the local level, city level or community level. And we really need to become smarter about how that can be uh, uh, applied ranging from tracing, uh, for instance, needs uh, to also uh, providing for some kind of more uh, efficient uh, decision-making at the local level. At the same time, what we see happening is that many cities, because of the absence of a national or regional uh, governance structure, are actually developing their own governance approach. And that's really where we feel uh, where cities are becoming laboratories of innovation as it relates to governance of AI, ranging to, for instance, 
setting up commissions to really understand the impact of automated decision-making within cities, to developing directories of algorithms in order to provide transparency on what are the algorithms that are being used within the city, to ultimately, for instance, having citizens' assemblies in order to really understand what are the expectations of the residents of a city vis-a-vis -vis the use of AI. And so we see a vast potential to innovate in governance, and we see that cities are stepping up, and that's what we call AI localism. That's, uh, that's really excellent, and I'm sure it was quite enlightening uh, for those of us uh, who are hearing it for the first time and straight from the horse's mouth, if you will. So um, as a final question, so perhaps more like a uh, parting thought uh, for our listeners who are mostly uh, new to Frontier Data Technologies, what's the most important thing you've learned about getting Frontier te Data Technology to use? I think the most important uh, thing is that data and especially technology of course, um, um, the value chain goes from data to insight and then from insight to action. We have somewhat been focused on the first part from data to insight, but for data to be impactful, we also have to really spend more and more time on how do we then go from insight to action. And so a key, uh, 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 a key takeaway is that we need to connect data intelligence with decision intelligence and if we don't do that, the impact will be limited. And so we need to really rethink uh, how we both generate insight, but also how we make decisions and connect the two in order to really provide the impact that can be established. I think that's a brilliant point uh, to close our podcast. Uh, Stefan, it's been a pleasure, quite informative and uh, quite recharging for those of us working in this field. And uh, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you. Dear listeners, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Data Frontier Podcast. If you wish to learn more about the work of our guests, please check out the links in the description. I would also encourage you to check out the full Frontier Data Study, which can also be found in the link below. This podcast is funded by the FCDO, and I would like to thank uh, Matthew McConaughey, the podcast content lead, and many thanks to our producers, Ben Walker and David Wigerow. Please do check out our other episodes in this podcast series and get in touch with us if you wish to learn more or partner up on any projects. Contact information to reach us is also in the description. Thanks so much for listening and have a great evening or day wherever in the part of the world that you're joining us from. Thank you. Thank you.